around 1450, around that, uh, there were two gentlemen named Copernicus and Galileo who de de developed the telescope. So they were able to look at the heavens differently. Up until that time, because the Bible said it, the first book, the first chapter, Genesis, described the creation and said that the, here was the earth and there was a dome over the earth and God put into the dome the sun, the stars, the moon. Anybody see the blue moon this morning? I got it before 30. Woo, it was amazing. But that he put these in the dome and then the dome would rotate around the earth. So the earth was thought to be flat because that's what it looked like with the naked eye. You saw ships go and as they got to the end of the horizon, it, it, you know, it, it, the sun went down there, so the presumption was that you could sail right off the edge of the earth. It was false. It was incorrect. And so when Galileo and Copernicus proved, I guess, uh, that the, the sun and moon and stars were not rotating around the earth, rather, the earth was spinning and rotating around the sun. Well, the church threw them out, excommunicated them. Uh, I don't know what happened to Copernicus, but Galileo got welcomed back by John Paul II about 30 years ago, something like that. Well, this should have opened our eyes tremendously, and it did. Because we had also, uh, because of the Second Vatican Council, re-energized ourselves as a Catholic church with people of the word. So, we used to have one lectionary that was for the whole year, and we expanded it to three cycle A, B, and C. So A, we, we center on Matthew, B, we center on Mark, and C, we center on Luke. And John is sprinkled in all over. The um, now, I say all of this by way of introduction because the most problematic book that I know of in the Bible is the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. People love to take this literally, literally especially the um, evangelical churches. So they're always uh, saying, well, the end of time is coming because the Antichrist is this and that and this and that. But, but the Knights of Columbus, many years ago, put out a pamphlet. I just ordered it for a friend uh, yesterday. Um, and in this pamphlet, they, they say that the book is highly symbolic, not to be taken literally, but to understand the rich symbolism that is in it. And it's loaded with things. For example, um, how many tribes of Israel are there, were there? Twelve tribes. Uh, who's the, who are the best mathematicians among us? Raise your hand if you love math. See who gets it first. Twelve times twelve? I'm sorry. Twelve times twelve? That's in the word today. Twelve tribes and twelve apostles? Hello. Christians would get that. This book was written to Christians who were under persecution. They were being put to death because they believed in Jesus Christ. Where'd they take the church? Underground, literally, into the Roman catacombs, and they celebrated Mass underground. They didn't baptize easily or welcome into the church easily. It was tough to get into the church because they didn't trust that people coming out were not going to turn them over and, and have them killed. So this book is so rich in symbolism, and I won't go through them all, the, the seal on the forehead, all these things, you know, but, but there's a, one tremendous one in this one. And it identifies the people in the white robes. Who are those people? The baptized. But listen to what it says about the, 
the baptized. He said, they will wash their, their white robes, they will wash them white in what? The blood of the Lamb. Now, I've never seen white blood. It's always red. So it doesn't make sense literally. They'll wash their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. But every Christian got this. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Lamb of God who died on the cross, the Lamb who shed the last drop of blood for us, who brought us salvation and redemption. This book was meant to be for them a very encouraging book, basically saying this, stay faithful to God in your baptismal faith because God will always be faithful to you and he will save you. It's a very rich and beautiful book, and I really encourage you, and if people bug me, I'll, I'll order it for you, this uh, incredible pamphlet by, by Knights of Columbus. Now, the reason that takes such meaning today is because um, not that only Catholic Christians or Christians can get into heaven. That it, it kind of is nonsense when you think about it. That would make God an underachiever of the highest class. Because there's two out of three people on the planet are never going to be Christian. They're Islam and Jewish and Buddhist and, and Sikh and you name it. They're never going to become Christian, probably. So of the, there's about two billion Christians, not even all Catholics. And then there's about four billion other. So if God is not going to save four billion of his people, which is why we need that second reading so badly today, because what it just simply says is, we know this, we're God's children. And that, believe me, Jews and people of Islam believe they're children of God. How can we not be? God created all of us. And I just can't believe that God is a loser, that he, he creates uh, six billion people and says, oh, I wish I could save the other four billion, but unless they get baptized, you know, can't do it. I'm stuck. I'm powerless. God is not powerless. God has made us all, and we are his children. And that letter says, we know we're God's children now. We know it. What we shall be, we don't really know that. It's not been revealed yet. And um, the only people I hear who reveal it are people, and there may be some here, I'm not mocking you, but I'm just saying people who have had near-death experiences and talk about approaching a life but coming back. And I don't know what that means. I've never experienced it. And who knows? Who knows what the brain does and, and how we get through experiences that are traumatic. But in any case, I don't know anybody who has literally died and come back. And I don't care what they tell me. I don't know anybody who's done it. We don't know. It's not been revealed. But we know we're God's children. And for me, that takes an enormous climax in this Feast of All Saints. Because death is just by definition a, a pretty total experience. The experience through which we leave this matter, this physical matter that, we, that our spirit is in. And by the way, I, I like the phrase, not that our, 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 our bodies have a spirit, our spirits have a body. The spirit is who we are expressed in bodies. But, you know, I could chop off my arms, my legs, take out several inner organs, pluck out my eyes, cut off my ears, chew off my nose, um, and I could still live. And I could live with, with some machines pumping me and be alert. 
I mean, a lot of the body isn't essential in order to live. This matter, it's important. It's how we recognize each other. It's how we express ourselves. But it's the inner spirit that's everything. I will dare take this further just because today's a wonderful feast. I say it at almost every wedding. I say it at funerals sometimes. But... Um, because I, 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 it, it is an insight that, that I'm forever grateful. I don't even know the woman's name. But about 35 years ago, when I was in my first pastorate in Mother of Sorrows in South Central, a couple came in. Interesting, because I just celebrated over the uh, Internet yesterday a 50th anniversary with some people remembering them at the next Mass, too. Their names were mentioned. But this couple came in because it was a Friday, and the, the next day they were going to celebrate their 50th anniversary. And so they wanted to go to confession because they were Catholics well-trained that said they should confess before they go to communion the next day. So they did. So the man sat out in the entryway, and the woman came to my office. I don't remember her name. I'll call her Lupe. And I said to her in Spanish, Lupe, you must be so excited. Imagine, 50 years of marriage. Wow. And she crossed her arms and in Spanish said to me, Father, my marriage is my cross. And I, I said... Excuse me? I was sure I misunderstood her. She repeated, my marriage is my cross. I said, Lupe, why would you say that? And she said, Father, there's no love or friendship in my marriage. I'm married by church the rest of my life. Oh, I, we have a little house. Thank you, God. Beautiful children and my great joy. But uh, there's no love or friendship. But I'm married by church the rest of my life. My marriage is my cross. And I said to myself, equally, this is, this is prison. This is something you can't escape until you die. So the next day when I had to listen to their vows, I just was appalled because they're going to hold hands up at each other and say, I promise I will love you and honor you all the days of my life. And I thought, you ain't doing that. And it bugged me all week until the next weekend when I had another wedding and a couple quinceaneras and, and, and all week long this swam around in my head. And I finally realized, after the next wedding, I said, oh, that's what I should have done. I should have changed their vows that day. I should have had them say this, looking into each other's eyes, holding each other's hands, like, but holding, saying, I promise I'll live with you until I die. Because <laughs> that's what they were doing. And I say, she taught me more than any class, any course, any homily I've ever heard about the spirituality. Because they did not have a very spiritual relationship. They had a physical one. They had a social one, they had a religious one, but the spiritual is everything. Anybody who is happy in their marriage or has beautiful friendships knows what a spiritual relationship is. It's where everything comes alive. And this is the Feast of All Saints. If we formally are baptized and live a Christian life and do what this gospel says, this is Jesus preaching to this crowd of people saying, how blessed, how happy, how blessed are those who mourn. What? How blessed are the peacemakers? Have you ever tried to make peace with even your own family? If you have two sisters who aren't talking to each other, one, if one's in the house and the other one comes, she leaves. It won't be in the same house. Have you ever tried to make peace there? It ain't easy. And they often turn on you. Blessed are you if you're a peacemaker. Blessed are you if you're meek. Blessed if you are you're seeking justice. Wow. 
Jesus is saying that as you struggle with these things of life and their challenges and difficult, God's grace comes right into that, how blessed you are, because God will give you grace in this. If you are spiritual, in the deepest sense of that word, open your spirit to God, seeking God to get you through this stuff of life. This is where grace and holiness comes alive. And in a very formal, literal, explicit way, if a person is baptized into Christian life and lives it, we say when they die, they are welcomed into the communion of saints. Others are not? I don't know. I think the other four billion will be too. But the blessing is that all along the way, every step of the way, we could say, we know we're children of God. What we will be, uh, but we know we're children of God. This feast day for me is the biggest um, acclamation, the biggest proclamation of who we are. As I said last night, uh, the scriptures today tell us three things. Who we are, we're children of God. Um, how we are, and that's the gospel. How we live this life and even the struggles and find grace and blessing in it. And then finally, why we are. And I think why we are is we're meant to become saints. We're meant to come into sainthood. And uh, we shouldn't have to wait until we die to get there. Although then I think it's inescapable. God takes us back, no matter if we were creepy in life or not. But how blessed and wonderful if we walk through life in touch with our saintliness, in touch with our blessedness and holiness. That, to me, is what this feast day proclaims today. And so tomorrow, when we begin the nine-day novena for all souls, or some people say poor souls, and some people see them probably or perhaps in purgatory, I don't. That's just me. I just think uh, God doesn't need time to cleanse us and purify. Death does that pretty much, I think. And when we face God face to face in death, uh, I don't think there's anywhere else to go to escape. We're just there. But whatever. Purgatory, a day, a billion years, I don't know. But what I do know is that this communion of saints is something we believe in deeply. It's in our creed. We believe in the communion of saints. In this spiritual communion that we have with one another now and after death forever. Today we celebrate all the saints. And let us count ourselves in that number.